Let's pray real quick. Father, we thank you so much for this time and opportunity to, to come together to, to go through your word, to connect with you, to find points to continue to connect with you throughout the week. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for what you are pouring out today and what you're, you're doing and, and touching in each of us. And with that, let us keep an eye on oneness and what it is that you revealed to us that we can bring back to sharpen one another in Jesus' name. All right, we're going to continue this week with our look at the seven spirits of God. We're looking at the spirit of might today. Uh, but before we do that, as always, we're going to do a recap. I hope you're paying attention during the recap. There is going to be a quiz at the end of the year to cover all this, at which time you will not receive any type of certification or credit for that. I'm just kidding. No quiz. All right. Did you say off? Did you groan? Okay, I got one just for you. Okay, we started off with cornerstone, right? Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He is the starting place for everything. Okay, there's one point for you. Uh, yeah, right? <laughs> uh, he's the, the one who placed what in your hands? Everlasting kingdom. And then we talked about camp life, right? About the wilderness, focusing on the rebellions in the book of Numbers, how those rebellions hold up a mirror for us to see our own rebellions and, and what that does in our lives. And ultimately coming to see that uh, it, it's imperative for us to remember what God has done for us, who he's shown up for us as, and, and really focusing on the mission that he's given us and then being reliant on him for everything. Absolutely everything. We've talked about this and hit on this over and over and over again. Reliance on God can't stop at uh, a prayer because you're in need of something right now. This is a daily reliance. Every single morning, we talk about this over and over and over again. Every morning, relying on God, asking Him what is going on for that day. Then we looked at the tabernacle. And we know that God wanted to be with and dwell amongst his people, his inheritance. And he made a way for that through the tabernacle. And that was just the beginning because God, through Jesus, made a way for us to become his dwelling place. And that was done through Jesus. And our belief in Jesus makes us the tabernacle, the new dwelling place for the Spirit of Most High. Following that was a look at the priestly anointing and how Christ's priesthood created a new class of royal priests. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament was called a royal priesthood, and now that title royal priesthood is reapplied to the church, which means it's reapplied to us, to you, right? In Christ, the church is a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And then was the topic of servant and son. We looked at the servant of the Lord and how he showed up to serve, not to be served, and did so as a son. His act of service allowed us to be brought into the family and in the sonship. And that means that no matter what the mission is that God has given you, you are there to serve and to do so as a son. You come in the authority and power of a son of the Most High. And we're going to talk more about authority and power today. Following that, we looked at the altar and offering to be able to understand what Jesus did for us as the ultimate and final offering that atoned for sins and made way for us to enter into the presence of God without fear. There's no fear in us entering into the presence of God like there was with the priesthood in the Old Covenant. There was only one priest who could enter into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, the high priest, and he could only do so once a year. Now, through this uh, act of sacrifice, we have access to that anytime, anywhere. 
And next was all about praise. And to do so, we have to be after the heart of God. Like David being called one after God's own heart. That's the mark on, on those whose life is a life of praise. So in that teaching, Angie offered us some, uh, again, some timeless questions. And I, I, I want to go over these each and every week because they are that good and, and questions that we should be holding on to and, and looking at as much as possible. And those are, uh, what choice will I make in the middle of opposition? Will I praise or will I shrink back? Are you going to allow opposition to come against you and cause you to fall back into either old habits, old patterns, or into absolute nothing and just sitting there not making any movement at all? Next was, uh, what am I doing with my praise? Where am I placing work? Those two questions go together also. You're always going to be worshiping something. What is it that you're worshiping? What is it that you're placing praise into? We're always going to be offering up work to something. Where are you placing your work? And it was worship, looking at how we must exalt God to the point where we become what? When we stand next to the fullness, fullness and holiness of God, what are we going to feel like? Small. We're going to feel small next to the fullness and the holiness of God. We look closely at the question, can you measure the standard of worship by feeling God? If, if we based our level of worship by feeling, we're going to be let down. I hope you remember that. Worship isn't about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about God. It has to be all about God. Worship is a sacrifice. And a sacrifice in the Old Testament was the burning of flesh, which we know is not going to feel good. When we start to apply that idea to us as a living sacrifice, there is something that is being given up, a sacrifice that is being made. That's not always going to feel good. Again, there was some, some tremendous and challenging questions that Angie brought out in that teaching. Is my source of what Jesus is doing coming from today or the past? Am I living in the old wineskin, meaning the things that God had for me before? Or am I moving into what he has for me now and where he's taking me? That's really what we need to be focused on is, is where we are going. We can look at where we've been, it provides insight. It offers us a, a look into where we were at, some of the things we said or did, but we're not living there. It's just information that we can use going forward. God wants a pure and spotless sacrifice. Am I going to give him what he's worthy of? In, in praise, we are are offering to praise the one who is worthy of praise. In worship, are we going to give him what he's worthy of? The fullness of who he's created us to be? Are we going to give him that? That's what he's worthy of. He's worthy of everything that we have to offer and everything that he's created us to be and everything he's gifted us with. Next was about prayer. Remember, the basis of a person's approach to God in prayer is never simply man's search for God, but it's God's gracious, gracious initiative, the establishing of covenant, and the promise of help and deliverance on the basis of that covenant. That's what we're talking about in prayer. Our, our search for God is, is really only made possible through His, His graciousness, his allowance of us to be able to come into his presence at any time. And that's that's the, the real advantage that we have on this side of the cross, is that we have access to the, the throne room at any time. We have access to God. In addition, that week when we talked about prayer, we talked about prayer cannot always be about self. Over and over, Jesus is talking to the Father about oneness that we should have that same 
uh, oneness as the Father, Son, and Spirit have. So it's selfless, not selfish. Our prayers of oneness, we're doing away with self. And we're turning our attention and passion toward oneness. We are one body, the bride of Christ, the church. It's time we start praying like this. I'm going to use that, that phrase over and over again too, because we have to take hold of this. If we truly believe that we are the bride of Christ and that we live in oneness, we need to pray like it. We need to live like it. So it's time that we focus on oneness. We all have Christ in us, but moreover, we are all in Christ. So you want to see the power of prayer? You put yourself on the altar. Be that living sacrifice and petition for the sake of oneness. That's where we moved into next was the, the seven spirits of God and started with the spirit of the Lord. And we looked closely at the spirit of the Lord resting upon him from Isaiah 11 to I want to read that to you. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And looking at that, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. We looked closely at that, and, and we could see that the way that was written in the original Hebrew, that was about the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him. This was a permanent thing. This wasn't the, the lifting of the Spirit of God from the, uh, him, as we saw in the Old Covenant, the Spirit of God would rest upon somebody for a certain task or a certain period of time to, to do something and then would lift off. This was a permanent thing. In that we looked at Jesus quoting Isaiah 61 uh, in Luke 4, and that says, the, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we know he stopped right there, rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. And then he told them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, favor that's extended over us, uh, he came to set us free from all the things that would keep us from him. So there's to be no separation between us and God, no sense of distance in any way. We should be able to come to the Father at any time. We know we have access. We just talked about that. We have access at any time, so we should be able to come to the Father. And this is the part of, uh, of freedom that we can grab hold of. We've talked about the all-access pass that we have all year long. It was part of the word for 2023, and we have to be able to take that and use it. And this is this is pretty much a theme for the entire look of the Foundation series, and in particular, the Seven Spirits of God, is, is making sure that we are using our all-access pass. More than that right here. Nats love me. It's not reciprocated. <laughs> Watchers. Next was the spirit of wisdom. And wisdom being the general capacity to have a right judgment in all things. Wisdom comes from, from life experience and reflection on it. And the interesting thing here was when we look at Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And we know that in this uh, uh, seven spirits of God, when we look at that in Isaiah 11.2, it ends with that. But it also is, is up in the front, too. So the fear of the Lord is permeating this entire uh, essence of the seven spirits that we're looking at. It's starting there. It's ending there. It's throughout the entire thing. We also looked at, at the fact that purely human wisdom has no ultimate merits on its own. Isaiah 29, 14 says, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. The wisdom of God is 
is revealed to the world through the ministry of the church, not through our human understanding, not through our our earthly wisdom in what we can figure out on our own apart from God. Ephesians 3.10 says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So since wisdom is rooted and grounded in God, true and spiritual wisdom is God's gift to us. We can't forget that. It, it is absolutely a gift to us. And again, are you using your access to gain wisdom? Spirit of understanding was next. Understanding is the God-given perception of the nature and meaning of things resulting in sound judgment and decision-making. In particular, the ability to discern spiritual truth and to apply it to human disposition and conduct. So understanding is going to allow, to allow you to see beyond the wise decisions. Understanding allows us to discern between good and evil. And it also allows us to govern well as the sons of God. We looked at a lot of scripture from both the Old Testament and New Testament that day, showing that understand, understanding involves both uh, uh, cognitive, uh, spiritual, and moral aspects of ourselves. But in that, you know, human efforts are called for. If we're talking about the cognitive nature, we're talking about our mind and being able to use our minds. However, the ability to understand still comes from God. It's that connection there. The connection to God is what allows you to work in understanding, to understand what is happening around you, to understand the decisions we make and how to walk those out. And the final test of understanding being obedience to God. If he gives us a, a mission to accomplish, regardless of how big or small that is, understanding is, is going to be wrapped up in the obedience to that, to that call. Next is the spirit of counsel. And this was, uh, looking at the spirit of counsel, it's going to be there to help us with making plans, laying out purposes, uh, aiding in decision-making uh, through helping you think through a course of action. We weren't talking about the spirit of counsel being laying on a couch, telling somebody all your problems, and then fixing you. We weren't knocking that, though. Don't hear me that way. Uh, that's just not what this was talking about when we look at the spirit of counsel in Isaiah 11. The counselor, the spirit of truth, who teaches and reminds believers regarding things of Jesus. That is one of the main points there. The Holy Spirit is the counselor and the comforter and doesn't leave us desolate. We can't forget that. He's there to represent Jesus to us. And to experience Holy Spirit, to experience the counselor is to experience Jesus. But the counsel we give and, and receive it needs to be saturated by the spirit of counsel, by Holy Spirit. Because Holy Spirit rests permanently in us as believers. Again, I hope you're starting to see that this is the reason why we're calling this the foundation series. You start to see things pulled back in that's, that build on top of each other. And thinking about the people you surround yourself with, they need to be completely connected to Holy Spirit. They need to be completely connected to the Holy Spirit in an ongoing daily relationship. Because apart from that, the, the counsel is going to be uh, less than what it could be. And we need to be submitted to accountability and oneness. That has to be a part of that. The, the foundation series is, is something we, we think I want to say highly of, but I don't want to misrepresent that. It's something that, that needs to be continually examined on an ongoing basis. The, the foundations that you build off of need to be maintained. A, a foundation can erode over time if we let it go, if we don't keep an eye on it. And if that happens, we need to find where the repairs need to be made. 
This is why we're going to keep going over this stuff over and over again throughout this series. So I was joking about the quiz. How much are you paying attention to this stuff? How, how much is actually sinking in? If it's not, go back over it. Find where the maintenance needs to be done and go back over it. Everything we're doing here on Sunday mornings is, is a foundational piece if we take hold of it. All right, today we're going to be talking about the spirit of might. In some translations, you'll see that it will say strength. And in some of the other more obscure translations, I've seen it say some other things. One of those is valor. Um, I'll have to show you that one later. Today, I, I really want us to see the might of Christ and how that applies to us. We have to be able to see that what we think of as might or strength or power, because power is the word that is, is really translated here when we look at definitions, that what we believe about this and what we're able to see may not be a fully developed version or facet of that when we look at it from the kingdom perspective. Looking at definitions, which we talk about a lot, we have to understand a fuller picture of these things. Our, our earthly understanding and what we think of when it comes to might may be lacking in certain areas. Augustine said, the strength of Christ created you. The weakness of Christ created you anew. The strength of Christ caused that to be which was not. The weakness of Christ caused what, what was to not perish. He fashioned us by his strength. He sought us by his weakness. I love that, uh, that quote because it really kind of gives a picture of, of Christ's working when there was not an understanding of him in the Old Covenant and how he showed up and came in, in a way that wasn't expected. Everybody expected him to show up in, in might, in strength, but in military and political might and strength and not understanding kingdom strength. What they saw was, uh, by every earthly definition, showed up in weakness. This wasn't the reality of the situation when you look with spiritual eyes and you start looking with a kingdom perspective and viewing how he showed up in that way. All right, there are quite a few Hebrew terms that are translated power, strength, or might. It was a very long list, and I'm going to not go through all those. Uh, when we focus on the, the word translated might in Isaiah 11.2, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it because I listened to it probably 20 times and never, could never even get close to saying it in the Hebrew. So the definition of that is power, strength, might, that word that's used there. And it is in that it's the force or power in comparison to others with the focus on the majestic awe ascribed to the one possessing this power. So this, this definition takes us back to that understanding that this is a messianic prophecy that we we're reading in Isaiah 11 too. It is, it is key aspects of who Jesus was and point straight to him every time. This word power, strength, might, meaning the force or power in comparison to others with the focus on the majestic awe ascribed to the one possessing this power. The majestic awe, again, pointing back to the fear of the Lord, that awe that we stand in, that reverence or that right regard that we have for God. From the, the Septuagint, the Greek is iskis. That's the, word, the Greek word, and that's capability, implying personal potential. And then when they translated it to Latin, it was 
fortitudo, which is the strength of fortitude. For the most part, the Old, Ter- Old Testament has this very concrete conception of power. Uh, and it's applied to many different things. It can be applied to uh, abstract entities, it can be applied to humans, and it's also applied to God. In, in abstract entities, uh, power can be uh, applied to things such as transgressions, uh, sheol, uh, but it's usually used to describe more concrete beings or objects that have the capacity to really perform some specific deeds. Now, this is uh, included in things like the power of the sword. You can look at Job 5.20. Uh, and see a representation of that. And even the sun who rises in his might, that's in Judges 5.31. So it can be uh, ascribed also to animals like horses or lions, uh, as well as nature. Talks about the the might of the waters of the sea in Exodus 15.10. And so we, we can see that there is, there is an aspect that when we talk about might, that it's uh, applied in a way that can be used for other things. And really what you have to understand is, is the, the key word in translating this is power. That is the one thing that we have to remember. When we think about might, we have to think about the word power as well. All right, human beings are also said to possess that's might or, or power in a variety of senses when we're talking about the Old Testament. First, it can mean uh, vitality concentrated on like a particular task. Israel being commanded in Deuteronomy 6.5 to love the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul, all their might. It also says in 2 Samuel 6.14 that David danced before the Lord with all his might. So there's another application of might in his dance as well. Yes, I took note of that after Friday. And all the dance talk. Uh, second power can represent the ability to carry out uh, an action toward someone else. And and that can be good. And you can see that throughout Scripture. Proverbs 3.27 specifically takes note of that. And it says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. It could also be bad, uh, this, this direction of might towards someone else. Genesis 31, 29 says, it is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So it was in person's power to do harm. But God told him not to. So third, both power and might, they're often used in a military sense, which designates a collective focus. And and can even be applied to individual warriors in this case. Uh, Joshua 17, 17 says, Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only. So this was that collective look when it turned comes to might or power. There are prominent fighters or, or heroes who were called mighty men in the Old Testament. The term was uh, especially applied to the mighty men of David. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. Uh, and fourth, there was uh, political and military power. Those were closely associated. And we know that's how Israel really wanted Jesus to show up. When the Messiah came, they were looking for somebody to come in and overthrow Rome, take over politically, take over militarily, and kick butt. I mean, that's really what they were looking for. So this uh, might uh, also included the idea of political force and authority. And we know it's the king who exercises royal power. The books of the kings... Uh, first and second kings, those employ a formula that, that summarizes the king's reign in terms of his acts, 
his might and all that he did. We, we see that phrase, all that he did before the Lord was good or bad. And so the nation went. Uh, and feats of warfare are sometimes highlighted. Um, but also so is the building of cities. That was also included when we look at might or power. So looking at uh, David's mighty men, they were also called warriors. And, and warriors who were stronger and more agile in combat than ordinary men, than the rest of the army that was brought together in any situation. Physical strength was, was probably combined with an inner strength or, or courage to make them stand out as powerful people uh, of their times. And that's something I want you to, to keep in mind is physical strength combined with inner strength. Because that's going to come back into play here in a little while. David's mighty men were a group of warriors, uh, had different numbers at different times. They started off talking about there was 400 of them. Later on, there's reference to 600. And uh, we know who, who through their loyalty and, and adeptus in battle, helped to secure the kingdom for David after after Saul's death. And, and there were times where David would divide them into two or three units. Uh, some would go out to fight and some would stay with the bags and keep watch and guard over the things that they had. And there was no difference in the way they were treated because they weren't taken out to battle. Just because they were left in the rear with the gear doesn't mean they were treated any different when it came to the victory that was won. Which I think is, is notable for us to, to look at. Uh, some of the best of these mighty men were known as the 30. And among uh, these were, were three whose, whose heroic deeds were, were definitely notable. And, and definitely worthy of, of mention. Uh, Joshab, Joshab Bas Shabeth, he was the chief of the three. And in, in one of the things uh, chronicled about him was he killed 800 men with his spear in one encounter. I just, I can't imagine the amount of energy expended in a battle with 800 people and all you have is a spear thrust and, and kill. That would take a lot. Eleazar, the son of Dodo. Dudu? Dodo? I'm going with Dodo. He struck down the Philistines single-handedly after the rest of the Israelite troops retreated. So the army of Israel retreated he stayed out to face the Philistines on his own and won. Then through Shema, the son of Agi, the, the Herorite, he, the Lord brought through him a, a victory against the Philistines after, uh, again, Israelite troops fled. It, it's incredible how much that they would run away and leave these guys out there. And the three, they also fulfilled David's longing once for a drink of water from a well in Bethlehem. David wanted water from this well. And so they fought through the Philistines, got to the water, retrieved the water, fought their way out, and brought it back to David. And David was so overwhelmed that he was unable to drink the water that he brought. I just can't imagine the loyalty of these people, the oneness that they shared inspired them to do this heroic act. The mighty men, they're, they're frequently referred to, to in groups, and sometimes an individual is identified as a mighty man, and you can look through Scripture to see these different areas. Nimrod was one of them. Gideon was another. David, Nathan. Nimrod specifically was remembered as a mighty warrior, as well as a great city builder. But more frequently, uh, mighty men were remembered for military exploits. 
these stories that we read about, about David's mighty men, were about their military exploits. There's also Samson. God raised up Samson to make coexistence with the Philistines less comfortable, to say. He was to begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines, meaning from being dominated and ultimately absorbed into their culture, pushing every uh, uh, remembrance of who they were supposed to be out. And so according to the Old Testament, that was the life, life purpose of Samson. He was a, a, a giant in physical strength, but he was weak-willed at the same time when it came to women. This was the, the, the physical strength divorced from that inner strength we talked about a little while ago. He did serve God's purpose uh, by beginning to deliver Israel from the Philistines, but there was always that aspect in there of inner strength that he lacked. The Old Testament states clearly that the Spirit of the Lord was, was active in him, and it did enable him to do some very heroic things. In the Old Testament, power and might are ascribed above all to God. Psalm 62.11 says, Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. God's power is shown both in the fact that he created the world and remains more powerful than all the forces within it. Psalm 93, 4 says, Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. God's power is also in his mighty acts of salvation. Again, the Psalms capture it well. Psalm 150, verse 2. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Some of the names of God point to his power, which is a complete other study that we could go through, is looking at the names of God. Above all, it's by showing his power that God reveals himself as Yahweh. In Exodus, Yahweh shows his power, not only over Pharaoh, but over the forces of nature, and really over all the gods of Egypt. So all the gods that they put their faith in were no match to the God of the Most High God. Even in the, the act of, of Pharaoh's magicians, his, the, the priest to their gods was no match. They thought they could do the same thing. They threw their staff down and became a snake. What happened? Theirs was consumed by Moses' sake. Because of acts of redemption like that, of, of bringing the Israelites out, God, think, God can be called the, the mighty one of Jacob or Israel. And, and really through his power as creator, redeemer, as judge, God has seemed to exercise his rule. And not just over Israel, but over all the nations, over heaven, over everything. It's God who fought for Israel as a warrior, performed marvelous acts of salvation, and, and in judgment causes Israel to be defeated by its enemies. Psalm 24, 8 says, Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. God imparts riches, honor, strength. He empowers judges and kings and prophets. And at times gives them the power to do miracles. One of the titles uh, given to the Messianic king prophesied by Isaiah is Mighty God. That's in Isaiah 9.6. That says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. While the, the power of God is caused for humans to fear him, ultimately only the wicked need fear in that negative sense. Those who do not believe in Jesus as the Son sent to bring about salvation, to bring us back into the family, to make us sons. We know God's might is not simply just raw power, but it's saving power. That very thing that we were just talking about, directed by his love. God's power is the basis for both uh, the celebration and petition of his people. Psalm 147, verse 5 says, Great is our, is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Very interesting to think about when we look at power through the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have to look at a couple Greek terms before we can get into the full discussion there. In some translations, power is predominantly the translation of the Greek word dunamis, or dunamis. And that most often denotes the ability to carry out an action. It can also refer to an act expressing power, like mighty work or miracle. It can also be to a supernatural being with great power, like the word powers. See, powers, principalities, this is the same word that's coming from that. Another term frequently used to talk about power in the New Testament is exousia. And that's most often comes out as authority. So we're looking at the power to carry out an action, and we're also looking at authority when we're talking about New Testament. So dunamis denotes the ability to act uh, based on inherent strength or capability in someone, and exousia really stresses authority to act. That's the right, the freedom, and power to act by, by virtue of, of possession of authority. So dunamis is often linked with the anointing by the Holy Spirit, while exousia presupposes a commissioning by God, so a call, in a sense. And, and we know God alone possesses absolute authority and power. So exousia can also be used to, to designate one who already has authority as well. So a ruler, either in, in human or uh, spiritual realm, the seen or unseen realm. So in some translations, might uh, is it's seldom used to translate dunamis and is not always used to, how do I want to say this, isn't always used to look at exousia as well. So we have to go back to looking at the word iscus which takes us back to Isaiah 11 too, because that's literally strength or kratos is another one. And that's power. It's literally power. So power and might, power, dunamis, might, iscus or kratos, they're used in combination in, in a lot of passages in Ephesians 1.19, Colossians 1 and 2 Peter and even in Revelation in a couple of places. So in regard to power, the basic, the basic affirmation of both the Old Testament and the New Testament is the same. God is the source of all dunamis and exousia. He employs his, his supreme power for the salvation of his people. So the New Testament it affirms the power of God as shown in creation. And this, this fact is, is overshadowed by God's new acts of redemption. And, and those acts of redemption are centered on Jesus. 
Mary refers to God as Dinatos because of the manifestation of the saving power in the incarnation. So in, in the New Testament, it's impossible to separate the power of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit because God the Father empowers Jesus at, at every point and the Son, by nature, shares the power of God. And Holy Spirit is, is closely identified with the Father and the Son both. So it's not surprising then that the power displayed in the followers of Jesus is attributed to God. The New Testament also references good and evil angelic beings. Uh, and, and as in the Old Testament, angels play you know, a significant instrument uh, in the role uh, of God's will. And, and where they're described as, as greater in might than human beings in the Old Testament. But we see a, a shift in the New Testament and demonic beings who oppose God and his people, they have a larger role there. And this, the, the terms power, the terms for power, they're, they're not always applied specifically to Satan and the demons, uh, but we know in the terms of dunamis and exousia, so power and authority. Uh, these beings are, are still, though, de clearly depicted as having power. And we know at Jesus' temptation, Satan claims to have authority and does so without contradiction. He says to have authority, exousia, over all the kingdoms of the world. Some of the epistles, especially uh, with Paul, refer to powers, again, those powers, principalities, and authorities uh, that oppose the rule of God. These powers, again, thinking dunamis and exousia, that power and authority, power to act and the authority to act, include not, not only the angelic beings, but also human authorities as well, human traditions, uh, uh, the elemental spirits of the universe. You know, when you look at Galatians 4.3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So the spiritual struggle between the, the forces of God and those that oppose him forms a really central theme in the New Testament. With the mission of Jesus and, and that of the disciples, it's to liberate people from Satan's power. And, and through his earthly ministry, death, resurrection and ascension, Jesus has subjected these opposing spiritual powers to himself. And, and although we continue to do battle you know, against these forces, we do so in the assurance that in the end, Christ's victory will be manifested and, and thereby seen by us to be complete. We don't always see it as complete right now because of the things that we, get, we are faced with and those things that come up against us, but it is complete. So from the perspective of the Old Testament and the perspective of Judaism, the biggest surprise about the New Testament view of power is the type of power exhibited by the Messiah. We talked about this earlier. They expected somebody to show up and take over, and that was not the case. Under that, that domination of Rome, the Israelites, they really wanted an heir of David who would deliver them through some great display of military and political might. And that just wasn't going to take place. It wasn't happening. We never saw Jesus putting together an army. There were no troops. And he didn't attain uh, or, or, or gather any recognized political office either. But the New Testament sees power, both dunamis and exousia, revealed in all aspects of Jesus' life and ministry. It was everywhere. Jesus' conception at birth, 
that was described as a miracle of incarnation through the power of the Holy Spirit. That uniquely qualifies him to be called the Son of God. His public ministry began, you know, when he returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, in dunamis, right? The, the power to act. Jesus is recognized as a, a prophet, mighty in deed and word. He exhibits divine power and authority by performing mighty works. Again, dunamis, healing the sick. That was one of them. That was one of those tangible things. Those mighty works that Jesus did, they parallel the mighty deeds of God that were in the Old Testament. And they they confirm that Jesus is God. So above all, the power of God in Jesus demonstrated was demonstrated in the resurrection. After Jesus had voluntarily submitted himself to the weakness and humiliation of the cross, God showed his great might by raising him from the dead and placing him above every other power. Every other thing that, that we would consider uh, in power as dunamis or exousia, wielding some act uh, uh, some power to act and authority to act, Jesus was placed over there. We know at the end of the age, Jesus is going to return with, with power and great glory. And at the time of the final judgment, the enemies of God, they're going to be destroyed. Christ will enter into his eternal reign as king. And it's going to be with a great display of power. Do me a favor, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26. I want to focus on a particular aspect of power and might, again, that we mentioned earlier, as it relates to uh, the mighty event, that inner strength. Yes, there's physical strength, but combined with inner strength, or courage, that's what made those mighty men stand out. Made them stand out as powerful people. All right, we're going to start in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cut pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping. But their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the inner strength to endure. The inner strength to keep going when you know your physical strength will not be enough. Don't rely on your own strength. Rely on God's. Remember the camp life. God's people relied on him for everything. That's what they were meant to do. They were meant to rely on him for everything. Don't fall asleep 
what you need to be fortifying for power and might. Don't fall asleep, but we need to be praying and keeping watch. This is the inner power I, I want you to be able to grab hold of. This is what we have access to. The, the words power and might may bring to your mind feats of physical strength through an individual or an army, but do not lose sight of the inner power that says, my father, if it is if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In the face of sorrow, even to death, let that be our declaration. Not as I will, but as you will, God. The spirit of might indwells you, indwells us as a collective. So use your power and strength in service to God. He's given you a mission that will that will go to making disciples of the nations and thereby building the body of Christ. Don't fall asleep when you need to be keeping watch. You have access to the spirit of might. Will you lay hold of it? I've got another quote from Augustine. It says, when God is our strength, it is strength indeed. When our strength is our own, it's only weakness. When God is our strength, it is strength indeed. When our strength is our own, it is only weakness. So where are you falling asleep when you should be keeping watch? Before you leave today, really talk with Holy Spirit. See where you can apply the might that is present in you. It's already there. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, so the power of might or the, the spirit of might is already there. Answer this question. Am I using the strength of God or am I attempting to go through this life in my own strength? And, and don't allow this to be some condemning question either. Don't, don't allow it to, to bring up any guilt. Allow it to stir you from anywhere you are slumbering. Let it be a wake-up call. A man by the name of Philip Brooks said, O oh Lord, I do not pray for tasks equal to my strength. I ask for strength equal to my tasks. Your God-given mission will require the spirit of might. Are you making petition for might to fortify you for your calling? Father, we thank you for, for access. We thank you that through you, your death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, we have your spirit indwelling us. We have access to you at any time. We don't have to wait for one day of year. We don't have to have a representative go in for us. We have that access. And we thank you for that, Father. Father, stir in us a willingness and the courage to ask where it is we've been slumbering. Allow us to step into the fear of the Lord. To wake up, to be upright, to be going after what it is that you have called us into. You've given us access, and we're grateful for that.
And if there's anyone that's unsure of their access, haven't made a, a declaration of belief in Jesus, this is your opportunity right now to make to make that declaration, to say out loud, yes, I believe in Jesus as the one who came on our behalf, who died in our place as the ultimate sacrifice, the one who brings us into right standing with God. This is your opportunity today. Don't leave here without declaring that to someone else. Let your belief be known. In Jesus' name, amen.